welcome to episode 121 of the Let's Talk Apple podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts, and this is the show for September 2023. It is another solo show this month for, well, frankly, all kinds of reasons. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you can hear, but my voice is still a bit not quite its usual self. Remember the heck that dose of strep throat was? It seriously messed with me. Um, I also work in education, so I've had quite a stressful uh, time of it this month, the start of term, all that, and also there's just so much news. I had trouble envisaging myself recording it as a panel discussion and not having it gone forever. So on the whole, I thought it made the most sense to do another solo show. So... Let us start with some updates and follow-ups to ongoing stories we've been following. Our good friends over at the NSO group are still at it. Uh, Apple yet again patched their operating systems against previously unknown but exploited vulnerabilities that were discovered to be in use by Pegasus. Apple then warned some Russian journalists that they had been the target of these Pegasus attacks. And then about a week later, it all happened again, only it wasn't Pegasus. It was a different, very similar piece of semi-official, run, you know, sort of grey hat at best, um, security software, hacking software, spying software. I would, I, I always put these things in a very dark camp, but officially they are legal. Anyway, another one of those NSO group Pegasus style things. This one was called Predator. And again, Apple patched everything to protect people from it. One of our main stories last month was Apple's surprise support for a right-to-repair bill in California. That is now a right-to-repair law in California, and it is being described as the strongest bill yet in the United States, requiring seven years of coverage for parts, which is quite a lot. And Apple continued to expand into India, and they've done a big deal for Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, India's Tata Play Binge service is basically coming to Apple TV+, Plus, so that's going to give lots and lots and lots of back catalogue stuff to Apple's viewers in India, or who want to watch Indian content. Moving on to regulatory rundown. If I had been reporting, recording this show a little bit earlier in September... I might have been raising concern that iPhone 12 may end up having to be recalled in France. But after some strum and drang about basically nothing, um, Apple have placated the French regulators and all is well again in the universe. Um, There are international tests for measuring how much EM radiation a cell phone puts out. The iPhone 12 past that certification it is fully certified uh, but the french do their tests a little bit different and for reasons that aren't clear to me they decided to dig up through the back catalogue of phones and to retest the iphone 12 with their unique test and they found it to slightly breach the limits and therefore they threatened to ban the sale of the not on sale anymore iphone 12 and to recall the iPhone 12, which would have been a much bigger deal. Now, in terms of the numbers here, um, I I listened to a few physicists explain it to me, and basically, this was nowhere within even an order of magnitude 
of being a safety risk. In other words, even at the supposedly slightly too high above the regulation level, that we're still hundreds of times below the actually dangerous level. So the, there was never any actual danger to any actual anyone. And of course, the iPhone 12 is absolutely fine everywhere else because it passes other tests just absolutely fine. But this French protocol was slightly different and it didn't pass that. And so Apple have resolved the issue with a small software update that reduces the power of cell phones. So what I think the French have done is succeeded in making everyone's iPhones worse. Everyone's iPhone 12 is a little bit worse, drop a few more calls, get a little bit less signal. So congratulations, well done, great big victory over a non-existent, non-safety issue. Meanwhile, in China, Apple have been trying, it would appear, at least based on reporting from the Wall Street Journal, um, Apple have been trying to push back at upcoming changes to the law in China, which is tightening the screws just a little bit more on app stores. It's not just targeting Apple's app store, it's all app stores. Um, apps in those app stores are going to need a license, and part of getting that license will be that you need to either have your own operations in China or to be working with a partner that has operations in China. And you need to get this actual license to be able to put your app on a store. And officially, there's a grace period on the new law until March 2024. And so we had reporting that Apple met the Chinese government to try to push back against these rules. But then a day or two later, uh, Apple started to require the licenses on new apps being added to the store. There's no mention of what's going to happen to the old apps, but one must logically assume that sometime between now and March 2024, any existing app that doesn't have a license is going to get thrown off the store, which is mostly going to be the Western social media apps that are already not really in use in China anyway. So it's probably not a giant big thing, but it is nonetheless another example of Apple being forced to, through gritted teeth, follow the law in China. Because you can't be in China and not follow the law in China. You either leave the market or you abide by the laws. There, There is no third way. Uh, the South Koreans uh, are continuing their fight against the major upsurges. Now in South Korea... The biggest app store by far is Google. And so the various laws they've passed to try to regulate the app stores are actually called Google, you know, anti-Google laws, not anti-Apple laws. But Apple also have an app store in South Korea. And so they also get caught up in this. And there is now a threat from the South Korean government against both Google and Apple uh, that they're going to be fined if they don't start allowing third-party payments on their app stores. And finally, all the way down under in Australia, the Australian Senate is launching a probe into big tech. Seems to be a pretty wide-ranging probe, and they are targeting Apple, Google, and Amazon in their probe. We, you know, they've sent out questionnaires, they're waiting for answers, so we shall see where that develops over time. Not too distant in terms of topic from regulatory rundown, we move on to legal latest. First, we pay a very brief visit to the Apple v. Epic saga. This is now very much, well, it doesn't have to be the final furlong, but it's it's heading up to the highest court in the land, off to the US Supreme Court. That court could decide not to hear either company's request. They could turn both down, basically, in which case the case is over. They could choose to hear it, in which case we get to have a whole bunch of new stuff about, you know, the actual case in order from court. 
or they could kick it back down to a lower court and get to do it all over again. So this is my, you know, it could be nearly over or it might not be. Anyway, Epic have filed paperwork with the US Supreme Court asking them to review the whole case. And the next day, Apple filed some paperwork of its own asking for the Supreme Court review only the anti-steering part of the ruling, which is the one, you know, the sort of one-tenth of the ruling that did not go Apple's way. And they're not asking, strangely enough, for the Supreme Court to review the nine-tenths of the case that did go Apple's way. And one final quick story here. Um, Apple and Rivios, that's a, a long-running, simmering-away story. So Rivios is a chip startup in the Silicon Valley set up by former Apple employees and Apple are trying to sue them because they're saying they stole Apple's IP and they're off trying to profit off Apple's IP and they say no they're not. Um, they're cranky with Apple effectively harassing their employees as they see it. Uh, they have problems with Apple's anti-competes you know, and there are laws against that in California. Anyway, uh, Rivios have decided to counter sue Apple over what they say is employee intimidation and those very restrictive uh, agreements. We shall see how all of that goes. Moving on to Apple HR and acquisition news. Just a quick little update here. Um, we've heard about, you know, unionization efforts in the United Kingdom and America. We have heard about crankiness in America. Well, we have a new set of crankiness to add to the list. French Apple store workers are cranky at Apple and they decided to express that crankitude by picking the iPhone's 15 launch day as a good day to go on strike. What they are looking for is better pay rises because what Apple are offering at the moment is below the rate of inflation in France and therefore it is seen as effectively a pay cut, which is, economically speaking, a true thing. And meanwhile, back in the United States, um, it made some news that Apple was reducing the raises given to its various retail employees. Now, I think when people hear reduction, they think there's pay cuts. No, Apple are increasing every you know the their retail workers' pay, but the increase isn't as big as previous increases had been. Now, previous increases have been very skewed by COVID because due to the very difficult working conditions, one of the ways... Apple and many, many, many others had to convince retail workers to risk exposing themselves to a dangerous virus was by paying them better. Um, and so the, the pay rises over the COVID period were above the norm before the COVID period. And we now seem to be reverting back to the pre-COVID norm in terms of the pay rises. Obviously, everyone would like more, but it, I, I don't get the impression Apple are being nefarious here. And I, for one, have certainly been quite critical of how Apple have treated their American employees. But in this case, I don't I don't see a giant big, I don't see anything horrifically wrong with this. Moving on to Apple services and original content highlights. Just a quick little spin through some of Apple's various services here, starting with iCloud Plus. One of the smaller things in the Wonderlust event we're going to be spending a good, good chunk of the main stories on is they mentioned in the keynote in passing there will be bigger iCloud plans and then they kind of wandered off. Well, those details were released after the keynote and they're now on sale. So if you would like to upgrade your iCloud Plus to 6 or 12 terabytes, you can do so. The price is pretty much in keeping with what you pay for 2 terabytes. Just keep multiplying it up. So you're not getting massive discounts by going bigger, but if you are 
filling it up because you're shooting a lot of videos or large photos or you have many files, you can now go all the way up to 12 terabytes, assuming you're prepared to open your wallet to an appropriate degree. And Apple TV Plus land has been relatively quiet, you know, some minor strikes going on. Um, But Apple did take some time to launch their various holiday things and there's... A whole bunch of cool stuff aimed at kids, really. So um, Apple did a big press release announcing it all. And so that is linked in the show notes. They also did a big press release about Apple Arcade, where they are immediate, they immediately added four new games, including the NBA's 2K24 Arcade Edition, uh, Cut the Rope 3, Jeopardy World Tour Plus, and Crossword Jam Plus. And they say there will be 30 more games released throughout October. So that is not at all insubstantial. Again, quite the push from Apple to Apple Arcade in recent months that is continuing. In Apple Podcast Land, another place Apple have been giving a lot more love in the last few years than they had been previously, uh, Apple Music Radio Shows and Narrated News Plus articles are now appearing in the podcast app if you're a subscriber to those plus services. And Apple also launched a hundred new podcasts from their various top apps and things into the Apple Podcast app. So a lot of new Apple-specific content in the Apple-specific podcast app. I do somewhat object to calling these non-public RSS feed-based audio shows podcasts. They're not podcasts, but they are audio content. Uh, But they're not podcasts because they're not actually available over syndication. Finally, then uh, a little some some changes in Apple or some developments in Apple Pay land. Um, PayPal have announced that PayPal and Venmo credit or debit cards are going to start working with Apple Wallet and Apple Pay. Um, that is, I, I think it's mostly a US rollout, but I couldn't find verification. I didn't say it was worldwide, but didn't say it wasn't. But that usually means it's US only. Either way, the press release from PayPal said it was Venmo and PayPal, but actually they've only rolled it out to PayPal so far. So it seems to be slowly, slowly catchy monkey on this one. So it is coming. And for at least some people, at least somewhere, it is now available. And hopefully it comes to everywhere quickly. Meanwhile, in the United Kingdom, um, Apple had recently purchased a... uh, a fintech company in the United Kingdom and they seem to be integrating some of the technology they purchased there. So the latest beta of iOS 17.1 includes some UK only coolness in the Apple wallet. So when you add your debit or credit card to the Apple wallet, you know, I do it all the time for Apple Pay and I can use the card and I get a push notification after I've used the card to say that I've used the card and I've made a certain transaction and that's all great, but it's just very much a make a payment feature. Well, in the United Kingdom in iOS 17.1, there's a new feature called Connected Cards, which uses various um, legally mandated APIs that all the banks in the United Kingdom have to follow to query for the current balance and then to display that within the Apple wallet, which is actually a really cool feature that, you know, you can't just use your debit card. You can also see how much money you have left on your debit card. That is rather cool. Uh, as I say, still in beta at the moment. And there are reports that Apple are working on implementing similar features in the United States and hopefully elsewhere in the world too. It will be really nice to have that in Ireland. Moving on to our main stories. On the one hand, it sounds like we don't have many. We have two. On the other hand, they're rather substantial. 
So main story number one is going to be the various bits and bobs of hardware that Apple featured at their Wonderlust event early in the month. And then our second main story is going to be the many, many, many op- operating system upgrades Apple released at the end of the month. So they are our two main stories. Main story number the first one. So Apple had their Wonderlust event. There are links in the show notes to where you can watch it back. There's also a nice by the numbers from Mac Stories, which is basically all of the stats and all of the specs all condensed into one blog post. That's a cool feature from the Mac Stories, folks. So I figured that was worth a link in the show notes. Let's talk.ie, by the way. And something else I thought was really cool is a condensed version of the event into 17 minutes. Um, I think it was The Verge did that. It's actually very good. And that's linked. That's over on, it's hosted on YouTube and linked in the show notes as well. So if you want to catch up on it all quickly, 17 minutes is a lot shorter than the actual event was. So that's a nice bit of work there. The first piece of hardware we should talk about is the Apple Watches. And all of the new watches are getting a new feature called Double Tap, which is a gesture very similar to what is what was demoed for the Vision Pro, where you basically tap your thumb and forefinger together twice as a gesture, which will be then picked up by the accelerometers and the blood flow meters in the Apple Watch and interpreted as a click on the active button. So that actually is quite versatile. So whatever the default action on your fo- on your watch is at any at the point in time you make the gesture, that action will be carried out. So if a timer is going off, that will be stop the timer. You can also use it when there's nothing on screen to bring up the new sort of stack of widgets. So it's kind of a nicely thought out feature. A lot of people are saying it's similar to something called assistive touch, which is a um, an accessibility feature in existing iPhones. And it is it is similar but different. It's the same idea, but quite different underlying tech. Also much, much more reliable and much less of a battery hit because it is actually relying on new sensors in the newer watches. So if you're not getting a new watch, you can sort of kind of simulate this new feature by turning on the assistive touch um, accessibility feature on your existing watch, but it's not quite the same thing. Also, it was one of those features that Apple announced that is coming soon. But soon appears to be really quite soon indeed because watchOS 10.1 beta already has the double tap gesture. So it is it is coming soon by the looks of things. So the two updates were the Series 9 watch and the Ultra 2 watch. And to a very large extent, they are talk rather than tick upgrades. It's, you know, you're not going, you won't see a difference on these phones, or sorry, on these watches from the exterior. It's basically a better brain inside the existing shell. Um, and a big part of that better brain is the new silicon. And that new silicon is, for the first time, bringing Neural Engine into the Apple Watch. So you're getting on-device machine learning. So on-device Siri is coming to the all the, to the two new watches, which is kind of impressive to have that that level of processing power coming straight in. Um. The other the other thing is that we're getting a better version of the W1 chip, which we're nicknaming the W2 chip, although I don't think Apple actually used that word, but it's basically more precise finding with a better version of that ultra-wideband chip. And then in the Apple Watch Ultra 2, it's also a nicer, brighter screen and a rather cool new um, watch face as well, which I rather like. Um, 
I have purchased an Apple Watch Ultra 2, which for me is a big upgrade from a Series 7, and it is an amazing, amazing piece of hardware. I'm very happy with it. If you are thinking of upgrading, I would definitely say that if you're coming from an Ultra 1 to an Ultra 2, there's not really much happening. In fact, the various teardown videos basically say, wow, this is the same. You know, okay, so it has the S9 system in a package, SIP. Uh, but that's kind of it. Um, links in the show notes to nice comparisons so you get an understanding of what's different between the various watches. If you're thinking, you know, do I go with the new Ultra 2 versus last year's Ultra? How much has changed? I would say probably not. Do I get an Apple Watch 8? I, you know, I already have an Apple Watch 8. Do I get the Series 9? Not that much is going to have changed, right? On the other hand, if you're running a Series 7 or even a 6 or 5, it's going to be a huge upgrade for you. And similarly, if you've never had an Ultra, going from any non-Ultra to an Ultra is a huge update. So I think, you know, what you choose to do very much, you know, Apple is building this around multi-year cycles, not single-year cycles. And when you look at it that way, these are nice upgrades, but they're not spectacular. In terms of the iPhones 15 and 15 Pro then, um, for the iPhone 15, it's a very similar story to the watches. An improved brain, um, and obviously the headline feature is a switch to USB-C, but not all that much change other than that. Uh, So the iPhone 15 Pro has no obvious exterior changes. There's Yes, there are a new suite of colors, um, but really the industrial, the industrial design is unchanged apart from that lightning port getting swapped out with the USB-C port. Um, in fact, the entire line of, phone, of iPhones 15 has gone to USB-C. And so while the hole in the bottom is now the same across all of the phones, the brains behind that little port are not the same. So on the regular non-pro iPhone 15, that that USB-C port's primary job really is to charge the phone, which is probably what most non-pro users expect from that port. And you can use it for data transfer and stuff, but it is effectively a USB 2 controller sitting behind that port. So it's not particularly fast data speeds. It really is just a charge port. And I guess, you know, you could do card readers and stuff over lightning. And so effectively, it's just lightning in a different shape. You're not getting much new power out of it. But on the 15 Pro, it's actually USB 3 controller that is sitting behind that port, which means much faster transfers. And in fact, you can even, um, on the Pro models, you can even record straight to an external hard drive. Now, one interesting bonus they did give to both sets of phones um, with the new switch to USB-C is that you can plug straight into a display, both on the pro and non-pro phones, without the need for a dongle. Um, So you can use USB-C displays straight from either iPhone, which is a nice touch. Um, In terms of features common to everyone, um, actually, we should also say that that USB-C is also um, coming... To the there is a new, there is now a version of the earpods, so not the AirPods, the traditional earpods, uh, the the white buds with the little white cables we've had for years. You can now buy those with the USB C on the other end, which actually means that right now today Apple are selling three versions of those traditional AirPods: the ones with the traditional headphone jack, the ones with a lightning plug, and the ones with the USB C plug. Kind of impressive. Um, and other. Uh, thing to note is that the AirPods Pro, so the Air, the wireless ones, the AirPods Pro, 
there is now a USB-C version of that charge case, which is actually a little bit more going on there than just that change to USB-C. Those new AirPods Pro 2s, they didn't get a new version number, but they do support a lossless audio codex, and those are actually needed for the Vision Pro. There's a little bit of prep work going on there for the Vision Pro. Uh, Something else Apple are doing across the line um, on these iPhones 15 Pro and not Pro is if you're in the United States for now, and I'm sure, you know, they did say it will roll out to more parts in the world, but using the satellite connectivity we already have for emergency SOS, you can now get roadside assistance in the United States from the AAA. I'm sure they will be rolling out other providers and obviously when they move to other countries, there'll be partnerships with the relevant providers in those other countries. Everyone was expecting price increases uh, for this round of iPhones because inflation, etc. But actually, the price stayed the same. One, there's one subtle subtlety in that statement. I would say it's a true statement, but there's a subtlety. Uh, assuming you want a 256 gig version of the 15 Pro Max, because the 128 gig version of the 15 Pro Max has disappeared. So the 256 version of the Pro Max 15 is the same price as the 256 version of the Pro Max 14. But the cheapest Pro Max 14 was the 128 gig model and that model has now gone. So arguably the entry point into the Pro Max line has increased in price. But arguably it hasn't because you're still you're paying as much now for 256 as you were last year. And there's been a lot of inflation since last year. So actually, when you do the math and you take inflation into account, not only did these phones not increase in price, these are actually the cheapest iPhones Apple have ever sold, which is kind of mind-blowing. So I said, those are all common features. So let's switch in now and zoom in a little bit on the iPhone 15, so the non-Pro. Like I say, for the most part, not a lot has changed here. Yes, we have some new colours. The most obvious change when people pick up the phone is going to be that the Dynamic Island has arrived. So no more notch. Welcome to Dynamic Island. Uh, The camera system is still a two lens camera and it looks, looks the same. But under the hood, we've gone from 12 megapixel to 48 megapixel. And... Again, the price has stayed put. Now, an interesting thing is that this um, this 48 megapixel camera is being used and they're doing the same trick on the 15 Pro. So this is an interesting transition point between the two groups of new phone. So the native primary camera is 48 megapixels. And if you shoot at 1x in the past, it would use 12 megapixels. And if you use, shot at 2x, it would use the center 12 megapixels as a crop. Well, if you shoot at 2x, you're still getting the the central megapixels as a crop, and that's now true on both phones. But if you shoot either the 15 or the 15 Pro at 1x, you get a 24 megapixel image, even though the sensor is 48. What it's doing is it's both taking a 48 megapixel shot to capture detail, and it's using pixel binning, so four pixels as one pixel, to make it effectively a 12 big pixel camera. It's using that to gather luminosity data, basically by making the pixels into four pixels, you get much less noisy light data. And then combining those two signals using image processing into a single 24 megapixel image that has both fine detail and really good light gathering. So again, computational photography being taken to the next level here. This is all implemented in hardware. So 
This is some very powerful camera technology. And that powerful camera technology is available both to the 15 and the 15 Pro. Now, when you go into the Pro, you end up with some other cool stuff. Um, stick with the camera for a second and just say that the big, big change for the Pro Max and the Pro Max only. So the Pro Nut Max retains the same three lenses and sensors it had before. Uh, I think there's some updates to some of the sensors. A lot of improved um, image processing on the sensors. But it's still the 3X telephoto on the iPhone 15 Pro, not Max. However, the 15 Pro Max gets a new five times optical zoom. And that is done very cleverly. So everyone was expecting a periscoping lens. But no, Apple have used a tetraprism to effectively zigzag the light path instead of simply folding it. And that allows them to keep the heart, basically allows them to, to collapse I did a whole Let's Talk Apple about this. Um, it makes the industrial design a lot better. It's a lot less compromised of a design. And it's really very clever. And the reviews are that it works really well, which is also good. Now, unlike the, the 15 Nun Pro, there actually are some really substantial hardware changes. On the one hand, not much has changed because the overall aesthetic is a roundy cornered slab of glass. And it is still a roundy cornered slab of glass. But instead of it being a chamfered sharp edge, it's now a truly roundy corner. And instead of that whole edge piece being shiny stainless steel fingerprint magnet, that whole outer edge is now titanium with a very nice brushed effect. And they have also taken the improved, more repairable design they tested out in the iPhone 14 non-pro last year. And they've brought that design where you can remove basically... Before that change to the 14 non-pro last year, to get at the stuff near the quote-unquote bottom or back of the phone, you had to take the screen off, pull all the guts out, and then get to the stuff near the back of the phone. Well, now the back plate and the screen are both removable, so depending on what it is you need to get at, you can either go in by the front or the back. And that really speeds up and cheapens common repairs, including a shattered back of the phone, um, as the most obvious one. Which doesn't mean that actually it's cheaper to get the backs of these phones replaced, which is a nice um, nice bonus. The other thing is that it, the phone is still getting dinged by the likes of iFixit for not being very repairable, but it's not a hardware thing they're dinging it for now. Basically, they're saying that the hardware is well improved. They're dinging it because it still pairs parts. Now, that's a security feature. And I'm going to put my security hat on here and say that's not a really reason to ding the phone. I absolutely positively need my fingerprint scanner to be cryptographically tied to my motherboard. And I do not think that is a fault that Apple should be shouted at about. It's a feature Apple should be applauded for. So myself and I fix it have a disagreement on that. But anyway, even I fix it say that at a hardware level this thing is easier to put together and that's because that iPhone 14 design has come to the 14 to the 15 Pro lineup. And again we have the titanium which is physically lighter. It's not as much of a fingerprint magnet, but because the moment of inertia, basically the lighter bits of the phone are on the outside and the heavier bits are on the inside, which means that the resistance to twisting and moving is lowered even more than the weight restriction would make you think. And so the pretty much universal review by everyone is that this phone feels even more lighter than it really is, which is a nice touch. 
Uh, I did mention that we can record straight to external storage. Uh, we can also, on these 15 Pro models, record 3D movies for the Vision Pro. And there are matching updates for Final Cut Pro, iMovie, Compressor, Motion, etc. To, to do all the cool new stuff. And Olivia Rodrigo's latest music video for a song called Get Him Back was in fact shot on an iPhone 15, iPhone 15 Pro. Uh, if you're not looking at the shinier cameras or if you're going on the 15 Pro, not the 15 Pro Max, then apart from the titanium and obviously the USB-C, the other really big change you will notice is that the rocker for the mute switch is gone. It has been replaced by a single traditional button, which Apple are calling the action button, following on their lead for what they did last year in the first Apple Watch Ultra. By default, out of the box, this button's default function is to toggle uh, mute. Sorry, not mute, silence. Uh, it's a press and hold until you get a haptic feedback. You get one haptic feedback for when the thing goes into mute and a different haptic feedback for when it comes out of mute. So in theory, you haven't lost any functionality. But of course, instead of it being an instantaneous flip of a hardware switch, you now have to press and hold and wait for the feedback, you know, wait for the haptic feedback. So if your main use of that rocker switch was to silence and unsilence the phone, this is a minor downgrade. But Apple seem to know what almost everyone seems to agree to be true, that most people don't use the rocker. There are an awful, awful lot of people who leave their phone on silent forever and ever and ever. And by having it as a hardware switch, you can't do it in software. It's actually slightly annoying and it's a waste of a perfectly good switch if you never, ever remove it. Then there's people like me who do toggle it on and off, but who actually find it really annoying that it's a hardware switch because I can't, I can't, I don't have an indicator in the menu bar that the bloody thing is locked. I have to take it out of my pocket and look at the toggle switch. Now, in theory, I could remember whether it was up or down meant silent or not silent, but I can't. So I actually always have to look at it and see whether or not the orange paint is showing. So I actually think I'm going to prefer it this way. Also, I don't think I'm going to use it for volume or for silent mode because Apple offer eight different options for what to do when you press and hold the button. One of those options, by the way, is run shortcut, which means you can really do almost anything. Another option is to trigger accessibility features. So an accessibility feature you need, which again, very powerful, very flexible. And then they have obvious stuff like turn on the flashlight, which I'm sure will be useful to many. And the one that I am going to be using when my phone arrives, which it hasn't yet. Uh, is launch the camera and then second press take a photo so that's going to be basically it gives me a hardware camera button that i've wanted for really quite some time so i think that's a really nice uh, addition like i said it is programmable and especially if it's connected to a power shot you can make it do almost anything so i think that sort of covers the big things again um i should have said actually so the iphone 14 last year so the non-pro regular iphone 14 did not get a chip upgrade really it stayed in the same family of chip and everyone assumed that was because they wanted to get a situation where it was always one version behind well, that appears to be proving true because the iphone 15 non-pro gets the a16 from the iphone 15 pro sorry from the iphone 14 pro which means that the iphone 15 pro gets the new a17 system on a chip which is it is the same level of better as you would expect. If you put them on a graph, the straight line continues up and to the right at the same pace. It is an entirely as expected tick, you know, improvement in the right direction. 
Uh, what Apple have done, though, which is kind of cool, is they have added hardware ray tracing into the graphics cores inside that A17, which should help gaming become even better, which is rather impressive. Now, something else that Apple did during the keynote that a lot of people were very harsh on them for, and I don't get it, because I think actually this was a very good thing to see Apple do. And um, what Apple did was they focused heavily on the environmental impact of their products. And they had a, I thought it was a nice skit with Octavia Butler, who's, I am a huge fan of Octavia Butler, so I watched anything. She played Mother Nature coming to visit Apple for a bit of an audit. It was actually, it was fun, it was well done. It really made the point that other companies talk about what they will do. Apple are doing the doing when it comes to this um, environmental stuff. And the big thing Apple are hanging their hat on this year, actually, no, it's one of two big things. But one of the big things is that the new Apple Watches are Apple's first ever completely carbon neutral product. Now, there is getting some pushback on that because the way they have arrived at neutrality is with carbon offsets. And there are many carbon offsets that are frankly a scam right they're they're just not credible not plausible now one of the things that i noticed is that apple went out of their way lisa jackson and her contribution said that they were high quality carefully vetted i've uh, carbon offsets the implication being no 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 these are real we are actually planting actual mangroves and actually planting actual trees to actually offset this carbon the other thing I thought was interesting is that they're moving towards their calculations include the use of the phone, not only the making and shipping of the phone. So in terms of the use of the phone, they're calculating in the charge cycles into their carbon calculations. And in terms of shipping, that's also included, as are all the stuff by the various vendors. So as part of that, they're moving to shipping by sea, which means that the amazing logistics that Tim Cook was the master of in the Steve Jobs Apple, those logistics now have to get even better. Because if you're going to put it on a slow boat from China, then you need to have your stuff ready earlier. If you're not, you know, if you're going to air freight it, you can have your stuff ready to go a day or two before the thing launches. But you can't do that if you're shipping on a ship. And we know that ships are horrible, dirty polluters, but ships also carry a heck of a lot of stuff. So... Per kilogram of cargo, a dirty belchy ship actually pollutes a lot less than a much cleaner looking airplane because a cleaner looking airplane carries so little stuff. So by moving to sea freight, Apple are actually massively reducing their impact on the environment. And as the shipping freight by sea, as they embrace more environmentally friendly technologies, that will only become a bigger difference. The other thing Apple are doing is they're getting rid of plastic and it is very noticeable in the packaging for the new Apple Watches. They are cardboard. They are distinctly more environmentally friendly packaging materials than I certainly have been used to in other Apple products. Side effect, they're easier to open as well. They're just, they're actually nicer boxes. They don't look as flashy, but I actually think they're nicer nicer to you so i kind of really like this and again packaging is a you need the packaging to make the product arrive safely in one piece these non-plastic ones are doing that perfectly and you need it to not look ugly but other than that it's a one you see the packaging once right you don't you don't go into a shop to buy and look at the box to decide what iphone you want you just want it to look 
pleasing enough that when you go to unbox it, you're not put off. It's really, in the modern world where you're ordering stuff online, the box doesn't have a job to do much beyond just carrying it safely from A to B. So enough of, you know, destroying the environment with these boxes. This is a much better approach, in my opinion. But the bigger thing that Apple are doing, so I think, well, the carbon neutral is the biggest. But another very big thing is Apple are ceasing to use leather. Leather is a spectacularly bad product for the environment because cows, if you'll excuse my bluntness, fart a heckin' lot of methane. And in order to get leather, you need to grow a whole cow for a long time, which means there's a lot of water goes into making the food that the cow eats. So that's a waste of water. And then the cow turns that food into methane, which is a global warming gas worse than carbon. So leather is a shockingly unethical material when you think about it in terms of its environmental impact. I know people are shouting at their iPods now, but I keep my leather case for years. Unless you keep it for multiple lifetimes, you are not offsetting the amount of carbon and methane and water and just general badness towards the planet that that leather case is doing. You can't possibly use it long enough to offset its horrific impact on the environment. Leather is a terrible material. Now, Leather seats in a car are obviously infinitely worse than a leather strap on a watch. But leather is a spectacularly poor material. Yeah, it's natural, and it's naturally destroying the planet. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. Anyway, Apple have done with it. They have released a product called Fine Woven, which they are using for both to replace the leather in both their Apple Watch bands, where I think it actually looks quite nice. And their very popular leather Apple Watch cases, where the reviews are universally terrible. I have yet to see a reviewer say something nice about the uh, fine-woven iPhone cases. I have seen people say nice things about the straps. I have seen people say horrible things about the straps because they're comparing it to leather and it's not quite working out. So the straps, the jury would appear to be more out, but the cases are a disaster. Or certainly accepted to be. Um, Another interesting point is that Apple had a long-standing partnership with Hermes, and Hermes are best known for their stylish leather bands. Well, if you buy Hermes directly through Apple, you still get stylish bands. Actually, I think they look really quite good. The first time ever I've said that about an Hermes band, because I really don't like leather. You might you might tell. Um, but anyway, uh, the new Hermes bands Apple sell are leather-free. And yet... Hermes are still selling leather bands if you buy straight from Hermes. So they're only half in. They're in enough to not embarrass Apple, but they're not really in at all. Anyway, that's uh, there we are. Main story number two, then, is all the operating systems that Apple released. And their operating systems are getting closer and closer together, right? I mean, they share vast, vast wadges of code underneath the hood. I mean, ultimately, you have the Darwin version of FreeBSD Unix under there deep, deep, deep down. And when Apple builds a library, they build the core functionality separate from the user interface. And they've now built a user interface layer that can morph between the different operating systems. So... They're using what's called declarative syntax in their modern APIs, which means that you say what you want, not how you want it. And so if you say, I want a button, I want it to be the primary button, I want it, or I want it to be a cancel button, I want it to be selected by default, you know, you basically say what you want. 
Well, that same what can be translated automatically between iOS, macOS, watchOS, tvOS, right? Which is why declarative syntax is so much more portable, which is why the new Apple's new um, UI kit stuff is portable across different operating systems. So anyway, there's an awful, awful lot of shared stuff under the hood. So it should be no surprise that a lot of the new features are also shared across all the different operating systems. So we have a lot more brains coming to the iCloud keychain. You can use it to share passwords and pass keys with friends or family. You basically make a group in the keychain, assign passwords or pass keys to that group, and then share that group out with other people. In a similar way, through a different interface, you can also now share air tags with a group of people. Uh, Safari 17 contains a whole bunch of privacy improvements, including what I think is some nice ones called profiles, which allows you to basically have multiple safaris within a single safari. So you can be simultaneously logged into the work version of Slack or Teams or whatever you're using, as well as your personal version of Slack or Teams or whatever you're using. So that is actually extremely powerful. And we also have the communication safety feature, which is a generalization of the parental control that you could optionally enable to use on-device AI to scan for um, explicit imagery and protect children from it. Well, you can now opt into similar functionality across all of Apple's apps in iOS and macOS. And there's even an API now, so third-party apps can in theory hook into that as well. So that's kind of the big, the big, big common stuff. There's lots of little things as well, like the ability with the Notes app to link notes to each other and some nice improvements in the Messages app and so forth. But, you know, they're across all the different operating systems. tvOS then, its giant, 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 giant big feature is that it now has FaceTime, which means you can use a continuity camera to do actual conference calling from your television at long last hallelujah, about sodding time. There's also some other tweaks in tvOS, but ultimately the killer feature here is absolutely positively the improvements of FaceTime. Um, if you're into SharePlay, there actually is some very clever stuff going on there. It should be, the end result is it should be a lot more reliable, a lot more powerful in some ways than it used to be. But again, the headline feature is definitely FaceTime with continuity camera. In terms of watchOS then, uh, the single biggest change is the fact that Apple have redone an awful lot of the core system UI. So the meaning of all the buttons has changed. So one of the most important things I have linked in the show notes is what do the Apple Watch buttons do? And honestly, it took me a day to get used to the new way of doing things. Um, So instead of swiping down for Control Center, it now has a dedicated button. And you know something? I'm using Control Center a lot better and a lot more now that it has a dedicated button. I've actually taken the effort. If you scroll down to the bottom of Control Center, you can click the edit button. You can remove buttons you don't want to declutter and you can rearrange the buttons in the order you want. So the stuff you care about most is always up the top. And I've taken the time to do that. And now I am getting a much better watch experience by having that Control Center be on the dedicated side button. So I actually think initially it took me a bit of getting used to, but that is the big change. We also have widgets um which again get a whole button dedicated to them again it's an improvement of how functionality gets handed out and the app switcher has some improvements as well so most of what's going on in the apple watch really is a rethinking of the core ui a lot of a lot of the interface have been streamlined a lot of the buttons and stuff have changed Uh, there are better health features but really the big thing is a rethinking of the actual os 
In terms of iOS 17, then, um, a lot of the stuff is coming later. Uh, but, you know, the standout feature is standby mode, which is basically our cool widgets, only they're on the lock screen when you put the phone sideways. Um, if you have an always-on screen iPhone, that's extremely powerful. So effectively, they're now little sort of, you know, little dashboards that you can leave around if you have, particularly if you have nice magnetic Qi chargers. So I, I have such chargers all over the place and it's actually a very pleasing feature. We also have contact cards and name drop and these kind of things. But I think the other really, really big thing is that as well as having those widgets on that always on lock screen, we can now also have clickable interactive widgets at long, long, long last. So that is a giant big deal. And then there's just lots and lots and lots of little tweaks all over the place. Me being me, the the tweak that I actually find the most pleasing is very, very simple, but there's now a very subtle level indicator that's been included into the camera app. It's so subtle you may not even notice it's there until you look for it. It's just a little hairline in the middle of the camera, which has basically a big wide piece in the middle and two smaller pieces on the side. When you have the camera level, the wide piece in the middle lines up with the two narrow pieces, and if you're not level, it doesn't. It's genius. So simple. Until you notice it, it's completely unobtrusive, doesn't get in your way. Once you notice it, it's a really powerful feature to use as and when you want. And there's just lots of these small improvements hidden throughout the whole operating system. The the interactive widgets and the contact posters are the things you're going to notice most. And if you use it, the standby mode. But there's lots and lots of little things everywhere. And given that Apple must have been spending so many engineers working on, on Vision OS sort of makes sense that watchOS, iOS, tvOS, iPadOS, and indeed macOS Sonoma are largely tweaking updates. So on that front, the really big tweak for iPadOS 17 is that we have proper lock screen widgets. We have finally have a health app. And then the other thing is that uh, Stage Manager, which is a very Marmite feature, has gotten a lot of TLC. And so people who use Stage Manager but were cranky with it are probably going to be less cranky with it in iPadOS 17. That's widely been well received as a nice version 2 of that feature. So maybe, in fact, if you tried Stage Manager and found that it was a bit too prescriptive and it wouldn't let you put your windows where you want and you were swearing at it a bit much, maybe give it another go here on iPadOS 17. You may find it's now flexible enough to make you enjoy it. We shall see. Uh, there were also matching AirPods firmware updates uh, to give you better automatic switching between the various new OSs. And so all of that happened together at the start of the month. And then much later in the month, we got the new version of macOS Sonoma. Um, so, sorry, the new version of macOS, which is called Sonoma. If your Mac could run Ventura, it can run Sonoma, which gives you some idea that this is not an earth-shattering release. Having said that, there are actually some nice features. So desktop widgets, so they're basically Android and iPhone-style widgets on the desktop come to the Mac. They're well-implemented. They're nice, completely optional, but they're nice features. Um... Those really cool uh, moving aerial screensavers from the Apple TV come to the Mac. They're beautiful. I almost put my Mac to sleep just to watch it. Um, And Sonoma being wine country, it's a beautiful aerial view of a vineyard and a hill as the default wallpaper and screensaver. And it's gorgeous. Um, Another another big thing uh, is that we are seeing that we have a new gaming mode, which is only available on the M series Macs. And in related news, we have Baldur's Gate 3 has been released and Resident Evil 4 as well for pre-release, all running on the Mac. So Apple's focus on gaming is again showing in the Mac OS 2. 
Um, another thing that has a lot of people very happy is the Kanban feature in the Reminders app. I guess if you're into Kanban boards, this is a big deal. So I have a link in the show notes to how to use the Kanban feature. It's a little bit hidden, uh, but once you know it, it's actually quite straightforward. And if you're into Kanbans, you will love this. And another thing that's interesting, because there's so little big picture changes, lots and lots of tweaks and improvements, very few apps are having trouble running on Sonoma. There are a few exceptions, like Bartender. You need to have a whole new version of Bartender for Sonoma. But on the whole, if your apps are working fine in Ventura, they're probably fine in Sonoma, which is a nice change from some years when a lot of things have broken. I think a lot of the deep down under the hood, major, major changes to bring the Mac into line with iOS, those are behind us now. And so... I think we should expect fewer breaking changes as we move forward, which is particularly nice. Let us move finally into some quick stories. Uh, First off, Apple have updated their iWork apps uh, for iOS and macOS. Basically, they're they're pretty small tweaks. Nothing earth-shattering here, which is why they're down in quick stories. But it's nice to see them not be forgotten. Um, I don't think Apple are happy about the next story, but they have renewed their deal for 5G modems with Qualcomm because their in-house stuff isn't ready, um, which means that three more years they're giving money to Qualcomm. Any new iPhones from now until and including 2026 are going to have Qualcomm 5G modems. So Apple don't seem to think they're going to be ready with their own modems until 2027 at the earliest. That is disappointing, I am sure. For Apple, for us end users, it doesn't really make much odds, right? As long as the phone is good at doing the 5G thing, we don't really care. But anyway, that's a thing. Another thing is that Intel have announced the details of what will be the Thunderbolt 5 spec. Basically, it's faster. Much faster. And I think it also can take more power, but I'm not 100% sure on that, but I'm 90% sure it can take more power. It's also more flexible in how it shifts the massive new data speeds around. So you don't have to set, you know, if you have five or six things connected through a Thunderbolt 5 port, it can be much cleverer about how it divvies up that bandwidth so that things like 4K and 8K video remains rock solid and other things will take the hit instead. So it's basically faster, cleverer, and I think more power. A good, you know, a nice take from four to five, but not chattering, not unexpected. Finally, finally, stick a pin in the date. Apple will announce their 2023 Q4 earnings on November the 2nd. Right. Thank you very much for listening. I have been your host, Bart Bouchas. This is all we have for the September 2023 edition of the Let's Talk Apple podcast. As you can probably hear, my voice is getting a little bit scratchy, so I am relieved to be nearly finished this massive, massive, massive news month. You will find detailed show notes, and I do mean detailed. Normally the show notes take me one afternoon to write. These show notes took me three days to write. So much news informed my, or so many stories informed my thinking on this one's massive dump of news. They are all linked in those show notes. Much, much more than I could call out explicitly here on the show itself. Lots of really fantastic detailed reviews of the new products. Big shout out to Jason Snell and the Mac Stories team for having done amazing reviews of all the new OSs and the new hardware. And an honourable mention, I think, to Ars Technica for continuing to have very thorough, very detailed reviews with a nice clicky around index. You can jump to the bits that you're interested in. Again, all in the show notes at letstalk.ie. 
While you're there, you will notice big blue buttons to support the show. This show is, as you may have guessed by the complete lack of ads, 100% listener supported. I thank each and every person who has ever financially contributed to the show in any way, shape, size or form, whether that be a one-off donation 10 years ago, or whether that be a continuous Patreon support to help me pay the bills each month. All are appreciated. If you were a supporter, but you now are in a different financial situation, thank you for the support you could give when you could give it. You know, I really appreciate it. Don't feel bad. I have sometimes people email me saying, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to be reducing my subscription. I was like, look, thank you for writing to me. You don't need to, because I just appreciate what you can give when you can give it. And if you can't, you can't. And that you don't owe me anything. You do not owe me anything. But of course, I'm extremely grateful to everyone who does support the show because the aim here is for this to be a break-even endeavor. I don't want to be pumping my own money into podcasting, but I don't need it to make me money either. I, I just want it to break even, and we're, we were at it, and then I changed the Patreon model, and so we're not quite at it, but I'm, we're creeping back up towards it. Basically, what I'm sneaking up towards saying is this is now a monthly Patreon. Officially, for reasons that I've been cranky about in previous episodes, I won't repeat now, I can't officially switch my existing Patreon membership from per creation to per month billing. So I'm simulating per month billing by creating one official Patreon creation each month, which is a list of my actual creations each month. So effectively, we're now on monthly billing. So if you think I'm worth $5 a month, pledge $5 a month. If you think I'm worth $1 a month, pledge $1 a month. You get the idea. It's much simpler this way. But again, Patreon made it a wee bit difficult. Supporting the show comes in many forms, and that includes sharing the news with friends and family. So recommend the show to people. It all really helps. I really appreciate it all. Anyway, I'm going to stop rambling on. Show notes at letstustalk.ie. I've been your host, Bart Bouchot. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy computing. Happy computing.